You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual I was all set to go off. I was all set to not only go off, but instruct all of you to go off with me. I was going to open this week's show blowing up at a high school, blowing up at some high school administrators, and asking you to do the same, to get online, to send emails, to blow up their social media feeds, because at North Bend High School in Oregon... Gay students are being harassed. Queer students are being harassed. A queer student, a woman, a girl who complained to the school administration was told that if she was going to be, quote, an open member of the LGBT community, that she should prepare for things like this. And the officer, the administrator, went on to say that being gay was a choice and it was against his religion and said that although he had homosexual friends, all the bigots have homosexual friends. It's amazing. Who are these homosexuals? When someone who is anti-queer tells you that they have queer friends, the next thing out of your mouth has to be produce them. But anyway, he says he has homosexual friends, but he told this student because she was an open homosexual, she was going to hell. Wouldn't be so bad, though, because she would get to go to hell with his queer friends who are already in kind of a hell right now, being this motherfucking piece of shit's friend. Sounds like hell to me. Anyway, I was going to sick you all on North Bend High School because this is not okay. And North Bend High School, a public high school. School administrators in public high schools shouldn't be signing off on the bullying of queer students or bringing up God or telling students they're going to hell, which, like God, doesn't exist. But I'm happy to report that before I could get to the microphone to blow up about North Bend High School, it's already a happy ending at North Bend High School. Willamette Week reports North Bend High School principal Bill Lucero and school resource officer, the dude with the gay friends who are going to hell, who are already in hell because they're his friends, Jason Griggs, are being removed from their jobs in the district settlement with the American Civil Liberties Union of Oregon. The firings come after complaints from former and current students, including Liv Funk and Haley Smith, about suffering anti-LGBTQ harassment and discrimination from classmates and school administrators. Good on the school board for getting rid of... Principal Bill Lucero and Jason Gay Friends Griggs. And of course, they did that because the American Civil Liberties Union got involved. LGBTQ students have rights. And thanks to the ACLU and thanks to the ACLU taking LGBTQ bullying in high schools seriously, LGBTQ kids also, in addition to rights, have lawyers. So instead of sticking you on... North Bend High School, which is doing the right thing because they saw the writing on the wall. I'm going to ask everybody who has a few dollars to spare to make a thank you donation to the American Civil Liberties Union of Oregon. There's no graceful way to segue to the next thing I wanted to say at the top of the show, so I'm just going to make the leap. I'm going to pivot. A lot of people write me. A lot of people call me, particularly at live shows. I get this question constantly. How do you keep the spark alive? How do you maintain sexual interest and passion in a long-term relationship? And my advice is always have adventures together. Remember what it was like when you first met and you first got naked in front of each other. It was dangerous. It was risky. You didn't know this person from Adam or very well at all. And you were making yourself extremely vulnerable. What if they're a crazy person or a serial killer? 
ah, it's scary that first time you fuck somebody or the first seven or eight times or the first 70 or 80 times you fuck somebody. It feels a little risky and dangerous, inherently built in the risk and danger that gets the adrenaline flowing and the blood pumping to the parts of your body that need the blood. But a long-term relationship, 10, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years in, yeah, that risk and danger, that sense of vulnerability, that's not there unless you manufacture it. And that's the trick to keeping the passion alive in a long, long, long-term relationship. You have to manufacture a little bit of risk and danger and get the adrenaline pumping by going on sexual adventures together. So that's what Terry and I did last weekend. If we can do it at 24 years, coming up on 25, coming up on that quarter of a century mark, you can do it. I get this question from people who've been together four years, five years, seven years. If we can do it at 24. You can certainly do it at five. Figure out something, and I'm not telling people who are in monogamous relationships to go have non-monogamous adventures. You can figure out something that you, if you're in a monogamous relationship, can do together that has some element of risk that makes the adrenaline pump and the blood come rushing in after it. Get out there and do something different. If you're wondering why your sex life isn't very exciting right now and you are having sex with the same person in the same place at the same time and doing the same shit over and over and over again, that's the reason. Shake up your routine like we did this weekend. And a big thanks to all of our friends at IML who helped us do that this weekend. And while you have your credit cards out because you were making a quick donation, a thank you donation to the American Civil Liberties Union of Oregon, ITMFA, impeachthemotherfuckeralready.com or itmfa.org. We are now selling pride t-shirts and tank tops. Sales benefit. All proceeds go to Planned Parenthood, the American Civil Liberties Union, and the International Refugee Assistance Project. Each one of these organizations is doing really important work supporting the LGBTQ plus community. And each one of these organizations is at risk because of that motherfucker in the White House who right now is going after Planned Parenthood. Please visit itmfa.org. Get your pride shirts now. Share photos of you and your ITMFA gear and pride shirts on social media with the hashtag ITMFA. For new listeners, of course, ITMFA stands for ImpeachTheMotherfuckerAlready.com. The t-shirt just says ITMFA. The fun is people will ask you what ITMFA stands for and you get to tell them. And their reaction, that'll tell you everything you need to know about them. All right, coming up on today's show, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, twice as long and no ads, ask a fuck up. Brandy Jensen, brand new advice columnist, joins us for a very special second opinion segment. All that on today's show. Hey, Dan, I'm the Tech City at Risk Youth. Um, I'm a bi married cis gal calling from the Midwest. So to give you some background, I'm part of a friend group of lots of couples mostly married. Um, one of our friend couples who is not married recently had a situation where he shoved her at a party that I wasn't at. The guy in the situation had some mental health issues. He was off medication. They had a really frank talk about it, it sounds like, and um, he agreed to get back on medication, return to therapy. She decided to stay in the relationship. All of our other friends were really concerned about her since this was bullshit, abusive behavior, but they've decided to stay together and I'm really struggling and I think most of my friends are struggling with how to be supportive and, and figure out how we should behave to this guy in the future. You know, some of our friends are saying like they don't want to have anything to do with him, which I kind of understand because what he did was really horrible. 
and other people are saying like, I want to be supportive of her. And since they're still together, they kind of come as a package at this point. There are two mitigating circumstances here. The mental health issues that are being addressed. He's back on his meds. He's back in therapy. It sounds like those were conditions that she laid down on staying in this relationship, on her continuing to see him, that he get the help that he clearly needs. That's one mitigating circumstance. The other would be, well, I actually can't identify it as a mitigating circumstance. It would be a mitigating circumstance if you can get me the answer to this question, if you can talk to your friend about whether this is a part of a pattern of abuse. And if this abuse, this kind of physical violence or physical intimidation has occurred or occurs regularly even when he's on his meds and when he is seeing his therapist. If indeed this was something that has never happened before, an outlier, and something that she thinks, and your friend has agency here and she's an adult, that they can work past and is tied to and can be attributed to a kind of breakdown when he went off his meds and out of therapy, then it's not irrational of your friend to agree to stay in this relationship, not indefinitely, not eternally, but conditionally on the condition that this sort of abuse never happens again on the condition that he take his meds on the condition that he get his ass to the therapist's office. And the question then becomes, how do you support your friend? Well, you hold her accountable to the promise she's made herself, not to a promise that she's made you guys that she will stay in this relationship on those conditions And you welcome this guy back into your homes and into your social circles conditionally with the same conditions, same expectations, the same demands that this never happen again and that your acceptance of him back into your homes, back at parties is tied to him taking his meds, seeing his therapist and never laying a finger on your friend again in anger. And if he can walk that walk, If you can do and be better, at some point you have to accept him and accept that if indeed there's no pattern here and this was an outlier and it is tied to his mental illness, that it was tied to his mental illness. And while that's not an excuse, it is the context. And there can be in a circumstance like this, even some empathy for him depending on how he frames this and understands it and talks about it. But part of the accountability that you bring to the table as friends and as a social circle around these people is there were witnesses. This happened in front of people. You can talk to him about it. Others who are alarmed can talk to him about it too and hold not just your friend accountable for the decision and choice that she's making, but hold him accountable for his actions. You guys don't have to pretend not to have seen what you saw. It is a difficult circumstance and we want to have these kind of red lines. You laid a hand on my friend, you're out. But often life is a little bit more complicated than that. There are mitigating circumstances like a mental health issue. There wasn't an underlying mental health issue. There wasn't meds and therapists and interventions. I would say cut him out and cut him off. He's an abuser and violent and doesn't recognize or isn't capable of recognizing that the problem is his. Hauled off and decked your friend at a party or shoved your friend at a party. Out he goes. Cut him off. Don't enable the relationship by welcoming him back in. But if there are genuine mental health issues here that led to this incident, this crisis, and he's genuinely remorseful and taking the steps he needs to take to make sure he's in good enough working order to be in this relationship and for your friend to be safe in this relationship, then you've got to welcome him back in at some point.
But, of course, conditionally, on the condition that meds, therapy, never again. Hey, Dan. Uh, I'm an Australian male in my 20s. I've got an odd question. I'm deaf in one ear, and I actually quite enjoy it when um, people lick my ear or kiss my ear or bite my ear. I'm wondering if that is a common thing for people with disabilities. Do do people who have physical ailments tend to fetishize sexual things being done to those ailments? Mostly when you hear about physical disabilities and fetishization, it is people with physical disabilities who object to being fetishized by admirers and aficionados, as they're often called or as they style themselves. I've never quite gotten this question before, so I've never really dug into it before. Someone being turned on, someone with a disability being turned on by the sight of their disability being eroticized or being paid attention to in erotic context. It seems to me, though, that in your case, this is as likely to be a coincidence as it is to be the fetishization of your disability. A lot of people like to have their ears kissed and licked and bitten. Most people who like to have their ears kissed and licked and bitten are not deaf in one ear or both ears. It's just something about the cartilage and the nerve endings and the thinness of the skin there and the closeness to the head that I think makes that arousing for many people, myself included, and I ain't deaf in either ear. So maybe this is how you have framed it or how you have come to understand why you enjoy this. But it seems to me that you may have read causation into correlation. However, if it is only the ear in which you are deaf that you enjoy this kind of attention, maybe there is something to that. Maybe there is a link between your disability and your enjoyment of someone kissing, biting, and licking that ear. But I think odds are better that this is not linked you know, we, the things that turn us on, we're always trying to find some root cause, some thing in our childhood or our experience or our physical bodies that explains why X makes us feel Y. And the unsatisfying answer is that our turn-ons are pretty random, randomly assigned, randomly inspired. And, you know, we're a storytelling species. We tell stories about our societies and our cultures and our families and ourselves to better understand ourselves And we do that with sex, too. We try to tell ourselves a story that makes things make sense. But many things, particularly in the sexual realm, don't make any fucking sense. And there are no links, and there's not really causation that can be established. It's better just to roll with it. And I think it's totally legitimate to tell ourselves those stories about who we are sexually. It helps us understand who we are, or create a framework that makes us feel better about who we are, communicate who we are sexually to others, But all you got to do is look at the spanking crowd to figure out that the stories we tell ourselves are pretty fucking subjective. Half the spanking folks out there will tell you that they're turned on by spanking because they got spanked as a kid and they made some sort of erotic association about the intimacy and the closeness and however fucked up that is and you shouldn't spank your kids. That's how they ended up being into spanking. They will tell you as adults. And the other half of the spanking crowd will tell you that they weren't spanked as kids and they thought that that was so weird and and compelling that other kids were spanked and they began to fantasize about it and fetishize about it and blah, blah, blah. So people tell themselves stories. They're really subjective. We need to tell stories. Again, we're a storytelling species and a myth-making species. But there often isn't an answer, not an objective one, not a verifiable one. But tell those stories. Hi, Dan. I am a 27-year-old female from North Carolina. 
I've been in a monogamous relationship with my boyfriend for about a year and a half now, and we have a great, very honest relationship, and it's the first one for both of us in which we actually enjoy being committed to another person, so that's awesome. I was raised in a very conservative religious home, and there's been a lot of shame connected to sex for me, and so... He's been really gentle about that, um, even though I've had a lot of sex-related anxiety, but it's helped it go away a little bit. So pretty early on in the relationship, he told me that he was bi and enjoyed sucking a cock here and there and thought, you know, maybe us having a threesome at some point would be fun. And at the time, I I was accepting of it, but it just brought back a lot of negative emotions and shame and insecurity and So he didn't push it, and uh, I told him, let's just table it for a while. And so when I'm scared about something, I researched the shit out of it. And so I read everything I could about threesomes until I finally got to a point where I was like, okay, this is kind of exciting, actually. And so that research kind of led to me to where I am now a year later. And finally, at 27, um, I just have to let you know, I'm in this phase of my own sexual rediscovery where I am like, exploring my own desires and reading a lot about it and trying out sex toys and enjoying porn finally and all of that. So that's awesome. I've also admitted to myself finally that I am definitely bisexual and I have told him to. And so now we've hit this wave of excitement. He's like, let's do this. Let's find another couple to have sex with and blah, blah, blah. And the the anxiety is kind of setting back in. And I think it's because I've realized that this sexual discovery is very much my own and maybe I need to go have sex with some women by myself without him in the room, get kind of prepared and try new things. And it almost feels unfair because, I don't know, it feels unfair to him. So now I need to kind of ask him if he'd be willing to open it up first before we do things together. And I don't know how he's going to take that Um, And so I'm wondering if you have any advice for someone who has pre-group sex jitters as well as pre-first time with another person jitters and uh, finally telling your partner you want to open it up jitters. For some people, only playing together, that we're a couple, we're committed, we used to be monogamous, we only play together, is a kind of monogamy. They perceive it as a kind of monogamy, that there are these sexual adventures that we have And that is something that we share and something we do together. So the other people that we're having sex with, it's still about us and still about our partner bond. There are hilarious studies out there where they asked people if they were monogamous and people said indeed they were monogamous. And then they dug down into the subject's sexual behavior and sexual history and what they found was that the couple being interviewed had sex with other people together and they identified that as monogamous behavior. So your boyfriend's reaction to the news that you're interested now in exploring your bisexuality, but at least at first you want to do it on your own. And I can understand why you might want to do that. I can understand your nerves. And this is something that you can talk about with your boyfriend when you raise a subject. I just think you need to be completely honest, as he has been, to his credit, completely honest with you. There's a lot of bi guys out there in relationships with women who are not out because they fear being dumped. And so they aren't themselves with their girlfriends. They're not out to their girlfriends or their wives. So good on your bi boyfriend for being out. Now it's your turn to be out to him about your truth, which is 
you are interested maybe in group sex at some point down the road, but as you come into the sense of your own bisexuality, when you imagine your first sexual experiences with women, you would prefer that to be a one-on-one thing where you're not performing bisexuality for him, not that he's made that demand, but maybe that's your anxiety, and that you're able to just be fully present as an individual and not half a couple. And then see what he says. It might be fine with him. If that's the path that you need to walk that gets you to to this place where he would like to be and has told you he'd like to be, where you guys can have sexual adventures together with others, three ways or four ways with other couples, he might be only too delighted to say, go, explore, do what you need to do, and let's keep talking. And he might be even aroused by the thought, especially if, even if he can't be there, he gets to be part of the prep, part of getting you there, helping you pick out whatever you're going to wear, and then hearing all about it when you get home. That might, for him, be exciting. And so there might be something in it for him, if you're willing to share that part of it with him, the getting ready to go, the going on the date, the, the story, the afterwards, the come down. If you're willing to share all that with him, then there might be something in it for him that is valuable to him. And so you're not cheating him out of anything. This is something that he he may perceive as you two doing together even if he doesn't get to be in the room at the time. But it all depends on his reaction. So the only way to this is through this. You're going to have to tell him what you're thinking and how you're feeling. And that shouldn't be that hard considering that there's a long-established pattern in your 1.5-year relationship of truth-telling. And... The telling of truths, in his case, when he told you he was bi, where he didn't know how you were going to react. A lot of bi guys tell their girlfriends that they're bi, and that is the end of the relationship. He risked everything telling you that. Well, now you are going to take a risk telling him where you're at and how you're feeling and how you want to move forward in this phase of your sexual self-discovery. Does he want to be there with you and beside you during this exploration, even if he can't be there beside you literally at every moment of it? I'm thinking he's going to be fine with it. Maybe he won't be delighted at first. Maybe it's not optimal. Maybe it's not the choice that he would make. Maybe it's not what he would fantasize about. But maybe it's a route he's willing to take with you on your journey of sexual self-discovery together, even if there's going to be a little detour where you're journeying on your own. Hi, Dan. I'm a female cis from the East Coast. I have a friend, he's my best friend, and we have been friends for probably over 15 years. And it wasn't until probably recently where things started getting a little more physical with each other, but I really, really respect him as a friend and would love to keep it that way. It's just that I have my own sexual frustrations. I haven't gotten much in the past little while. And for me, it's more of like a convenience thing, but I know for him, it's more of like an emotional thing. And (laughs) recently (laughs) um, he had come over, we were both drunk and I told him that he could stay over at my apartment and I had masturbated in front of him. And now I'm just very scared to text him and I really miss our friendship together and I feel like I may have crossed a boundary with him and I would just love some advice. Well, hello there, Louise CK. The thing in your question that really gave me pause and, and, and filled me with concern was when you said, for me, it's a convenience thing. For him, it's an emotional thing. He has feelings for you. 
he would like to be in a relationship with you. That's what emotional thing means. That's what you meant by that. And you do not share those feelings. You do not reciprocate those feelings. You could take or leave him. And you used him. You masturbated in front of him because it turned you on. And part of what probably turned you on because power is sexy and sexy is power was the imbalance there. Was that he really wants you and you don't really want him and showing off, masturbating in front of him was a way of teasing him and kind of tormenting him about what he'll never have, which is a relationship with you. And so you were excited on some level, conscious or subconscious, by the power imbalance that you were masturbating about in front of him. Now you feel weird and now you feel awkward texting him and you should. Because he probably left your apartment maybe not feeling used or violated or traumatized like Louis C.K.'s victims, but at least feeling bad, at least feeling rejected on some level and negated on some level. And so the reason you haven't heard from him since is that he's hurt because he knows that for you it was a convenience thing. And for him, it's an emotional thing and a feelings thing. And so you're going to have to make amends. You're going to have to uh fucking apologize to him and say, yeah, the other night when we were drunk and I did that, I really feel bad that I took our relationship there. You know, I see you as a friend. And if you guys have talked about the fact that he would want something more if you were open to it, then you need to cop to that. And I know that you would like to have something more with me or you would like to be in a relationship with me and that's not in the cards because I don't share those feelings. So me being sexual in front of you in that way isn't kind. It's exploitative. It's me using you in a way that is unfair and I apologize and that will not happen again. I am not going to treat you like a convenience thing because you are not a convenience. You are a person with feelings. Feelings I think I hurt, which is why I haven't heard from you in a while, and I apologize. Hi, Dan, and it's Xavi Youth. I am a cis woman living in the Northwest. I recently had a discussion with a group of people online about being a lesbian and not wanting to date trans women who still have their born sexual, well, basically penises. I am not attracted to transgender women who have penises. I am not attracted to men who have penises. I just am not. They went to tell me that my view and what I'm feeling is transphobic, and I just don't understand how not wanting to sleep with trans women who have penises or men who have penises is being transphobic or heterophobic. I'm a lesbian. I prefer cis women or transgendered men who do not have penises. They told me that sleeping with a transgendered man with a penis is just the same as sleeping with a cis woman with a toy. And I just, I just disagree. Dan, can you please help me understand how this is transphobic? I feel like I have the right to have my sexual preference, and my sexual preferences is no penises. 
I was having a conversation just the other day with a gay male friend in his 20s who dates trans men in addition to gay cis men. And we were walking and talking Los Angeles, having this convo. And I said that, you know, penis is really important to me. And maybe that's just age. And maybe if I was a younger gay man and the whole transgender revolution had picked up pace a little earlier in my life, I'd be down. And he said something interesting and revealing. He said he doesn't really care about dick. He's a top and dick don't matter to him. And so a cute guy with more holes than the average cis guy, he's there. And I was like, oh, well, dick matters to me. And it reminded me of a piece that I'd read previously and cited previously in Savage Love, a piece at Slate by Evan Urquhart, who's a trans person who writes about sex and sexuality and other issues. And I'm just going to quote from my column. Evan Urquhart, who writes about trans issues for Slate, argues that in addition to being gay, straight, by pandemi, etc., some people are phallophiles and some are vaginophiles. That is, some people, perhaps most people, have a strong preference for either partners with dicks or partners with vaginas. And some people, most people, want their dicks on men and their labia and or vaginas on women. There's no shame in it, Urquhart writes, as long as it doesn't come from a place of ignorance or hate. Mature adults should be able to talk plainly about their sexuality, particularly with prospective partners, in a way that doesn't objectify or shame anyone who happens to be packing the non-preferred equipment. So, your friends who are telling you that there's something transphobic about you being not just a lesbian, but a vaginophile lesbian, can go fuck themselves. You get to fuck the people that you want to fuck. We should all be thoughtful about the people we want to fuck. We should all interrogate our desires to make sure that they are actually our authentic desires because there's a lot of cultural messaging and programming and shaming out there that seeks to channel our desires and our sexual behaviors in a certain way. But if you've interrogated them and you've really picked them apart and this is who you are and this is what you want, you can own that. And no one's allowed to tell you that you're doing it wrong. Nobody is owed sex as a lot of people are pointing out in the discussion about incels, and nobody is required to sleep with anyone that they don't want to sleep with. When I say you should interrogate your desires and think about your desires, that's not so then the other people besides you can access your body so that you are doing who and what you want to do. Not because you owe anybody else anything. No one is owed sex. So the next time you get into an argument with one of your friends – Just have the link on your phone ready to go. The piece that Evan Urquhart wrote is titled Straight Talk About Junk, Why the Terms Lesbian and Gay Are Linguistically Insufficient at Outward on Slate. Just have the link to that piece. Tell your friends you will happily discuss this issue with them further after they read this piece at Slate by a trans writer. And then after they're done reading it, you can tell them I'm a vaginophile and a lesbian and you can butt the fuck out of my sex life right now. Hi, Dan. Long-time listener, first-time caller here. My wife and I have a monogamous relationship in so much that we go on dating apps like Tinder, occasionally match with a cute girl, bring her home, and put her in our bed for the evening. It is a lot of fun. Our issue is that as we've grown older and gotten used to this, we're moving away from the dating apps, and we really like the encounters you can have at monthly poly meetups. Uh, We're having two issues when we go to these meetups, however. First, there's sort of a vibe in the air of whoever you end up having a conversation with, even if it's just for the sake of conversation, we're expected to pursue them. However, how do we reject people that we're not physically attracted to, but yet just having a great conversation at these meetups? Inevitably, they ask for our phone number, 
and try to escalate and, you know, it seems kind of rude to tell them as soon as they walk up, hey, we're not going to fuck you, but we can talk. So there's got to be a better way to go about that. The second issue we're having is that the way our monogamous relationship works is that we only bring other women into it. We're getting into a lot of outright fights when we talk to couples and the male partner finds out that we don't take other males into the bedroom. We've had uh, the women attack us and say that I am controlling my wife and not being egalitarian about this. We've had the male partners who say that I'm being selfish and controlling, and it gets out of hand because ultimately my wife just does not want to fuck other men. Uh, To use your ice cream analogy, I want to eat ice cream, and she doesn't want ice cream shoved down her throat, or in this case, other cocks. So at these poly meetups, how do we go about having a good conversation with someone but letting them know that we're not attracted to them to escalate while also defending the nature of our monogamous relationship to other couples? I'd really appreciate some advice on this, Dan. Thanks. Best practice, wait for the past to deflect the past. Don't get out in front of the past and preemptively deflect a past that the other person may not have made yet and may not have intended to make ever. It is possible that some of the people you meet at these events who are asking for your phone number enjoyed the conversation and are thinking of you as potential buddies and friends, at least to begin with. And so when they ask for your phone number and you're like, well, hey, look, you know, it was nice talking to you, and yeah, of course, but we don't want to touch you with our genitals, so I'll give you my phone number with that. That's just assholery. Somebody asks for your phone number, you can swap phone numbers. If somebody makes the pass, then you say, we're not interested. You're really nice. We enjoyed speaking with you and hanging out with you. We'd love to hang out and speak with you in the future. Let's be friends on the scene. But we're not interested in anything sexual. Just be straight and direct when the pass is made. As for the other issue, sounds like you're going to places where couples seek other couples, poly meetups, swingers events, and then complaining that the other couples that you meet in these places where couples seek couples were thinking of getting together with you guys as a couple, couple to couple. There are plenty of single and unattached bisexual women out there in the world seeking couples to play with, and maybe you should pursue them. There are also, of course, partnered women out there who are up for playing with another couple without their husbands present, and you can be explicit about being open to that scenario. Just like the previous caller, you are not obligated to sleep with anyone you do not wish to sleep with. You can have your rules about who comes into your bedroom, who comes into your wife, and nobody can gainsay your rules. That people are blowing up at you or getting angry at you guys because you have a no dicks rule and people are projecting onto you bullshit that you're not shitting, that's their problem. And you should push back hard against it. And you shouldn't have to speak for your wife about the no other dicks rule. There are some women who would love to have another dick, but their male partners on the swinging scene are so insecure that they're not allowing that to happen. That's not the case with you two. Your wife isn't interested in anybody else's ice, sorry, dick. And she should say so. But yeah, again, you don't have to sleep with anybody you don't want to sleep with. Just like the lesbian vaginophile caller previously doesn't have to sleep with anybody she doesn't want to sleep with. As a general rule, as a hard and fast rule, no one has to sleep with anyone they don't want to sleep with. I can't understand how some people, particularly in sex-positive spaces, have a hard time wrapping their heads around that. Hey, Dan. I am a young 30-something professional uh, living in a major East Coast uh, metropolitan area. 
And um, myself and my girlfriend have been living together for about two years. We live in a neighborhood where the majority of its inhabitants do not speak English. And I've been told by my landlord, who speaks in um, a simple form of English, that when we are having sex, our bed is making a lot of noise. We're planning to buy a new bed to rectify the situation. But every time I Google best bed for sex or best bed for quiet sex, the Google algorithm is sending me like men's health tips on how to uh, make my bed the best for sex or something or like that. Maybe you and your listeners and everyone on the podcast knows a good brand or frame type or bed, you know, model to get that, um, you know, allows for pretty, you know, good, rough, exciting sex that doesn't make a lot of noise. I'm not sure what English speaking has to do with this question precisely. Not sure of the relevance of predominance of non-native English speakers or non-English speakers in your neighborhood would be or how germane your landlord's English speaking skills are to this problem. But whatever. Okay. You live in a place with not a lot of English speakers. Good on you. A mattress on the floor is usually pretty quiet. If you have a squeaky bed frame, you can always drag the mattress, put it on the floor, or get rid of the bed frame and just have a mattress on the floor. Doesn't make any noise. A solid platform bed. Without a lot of little parts, without a lot of little screws, without a lot of pieces of wood, something simple. They tend to be quieter. The more screws and pieces and slats and whatever else your bed has, the likelier those things are going to jostle and loosen and eventually squeak or rattle or thump. So if other people have other suggestions, we're open to them. But mattress on the floor would be my solution or fucking on the kitchen counter or fucking in the shower or fucking in the park. Hey, Dan, this is um, I'm a gay guy from a metropolitan city on the East Coast. I just traveled to a, another metropolitan city on the East Coast and I just opened things up with my partner. I was trying to get it on and I'm just perplexed at all of the guys that are unconditionally barebacking with out condoms. I just don't understand this phenomenon. And I think I'm frustrated. I guess I don't have a question. I'm just frustrated and want your reaction to this new phenomenon that's taking place where no one really wants to fuck with a condom on. I guess I'm just concerned for my health. And I know how clear you are about prep and, and safety. And I completely get that. And, and, preventing hiv and we've come so far medically but like jesus christ nobody wants to fuck with a condom on anymore like what's going on what's going on here is prep pre-exposure prophylaxis pills that sexually active gay and bi men can take and that the world health organization and the centers for disease control think all sexually active gay and bi men should take that make it very very unlikely that they will be infected with hiv not quite immunity. There have been a couple of cases of people who are infected with HIV despite being on PrEP and taking their meds. So it's not impossible to contract HIV on PrEP, but it is highly unlikely. It provides tremendous and very effective protection. Also going on here is undetectable equals uninfectious. Guys who are HIV positive, who are on their meds, who have undetectable viral loads, they look for HIV in the blood, they can't find it, they're uninfectious. A lot of gay and bi men have taken this as an indication that they don't need to use condoms for anal intercourse anymore. They have done the safety calculus and concluded that the pleasures of anal intercourse without condoms are so great that the protection condoms pr provide against 
other sexually transmitted infections, perhaps less worrisome ones, worth it. The risks are worth it. And we have seen in gain by male communities higher rates of other sexually transmitted infections as fewer and fewer men use condoms for anal intercourse. If you want to use condoms for anal intercourse to protect yourself from syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, to lower your odds of contracting herpes or HPV, insist on condoms. No one wants to use them, but it's amazing how quickly a guy will put a condom on his dick if he must to get his dick into your butt. So if condoms are important to you, and you know I recommend them to people. Syphilis is no fun. There are drug-resistant strains of gonorrhea that are circulating out there now. Chlamydia is no fun. Sexually transmitted infections up the butt are no fun, or up the dick, no fun. And condoms can protect you. People get to make their own choices. People get to assess the risk that they're willing to run for the pleasures that they wish to experience. And a lot of guys in our prep and undetectable equals uninfectious world, this new world, are concluding that anal without condoms is the choice that they want to make. It is not the choice that all gay men do make or have to make. And gay men out there and bi men out there who are using condoms to protect themselves from other sexually transmitted infections, even if they're on PrEP, good choice, good decision, good on you. That's the decision I would make. All right, we're going to take a quick break from your calls for Second Opinion. It's a semi-regularly scheduled segment where we invite other advice columnists or advice podcasters on to talk about the advice racket. Joining us for Second Opinion this week, Brandy Jensen, social media editor at The Outline and author of the new advice column, Ask a Fuck Up. Hey, Brandy. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. So you're the fuck up? I am. I am the resident fuck up. My mother is so proud. <laughs> I'm the savage in savage love. You're the fuck up and ask a fuck up. <laughs> that, that's kind of how advice column <laughs> titles work. Ask Amy. Amy is the Amy and Ask Amy. Uh, it's good to have you. How long have you been writing Ask a Fuck Up? I've been doing it for a couple of months now. It uh, essentially started as a as a Twitter joke. I, I half-jokingly said on Twitter that uh, I think somebody should give me an advice column called Ask a Fuck Up based on the premise that I uh, make mistakes all the time, uh, insist on never learning from them, but you know, perhaps other people can learn from my mistakes. <laughs> um, and then my editors at uh, The Outline were like, this is actually a good idea. Let's do it. So... I got to say, when it comes to advice columns, it's a bit like burlesque. You got to have a gimmick. And ask a fuck up to pretty good. My gimmick was like faggot giving advice to straight people about that opposite sex sex they're always having and not doing very well. Your gimmick, I'm a fuck up and you're a fuck up. Let's have a convo. I have some perspective on your fucked up fuck up because I'm a fuck up too. I like that gimmick. I think that's a good angle. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I'm just like, who wants to hear from, you know, kind of vaguely judgy, competent people, right? I mean, my listeners. come on, man. <laughs> so because you're ask a fuck up, I have to ask you, what's the most fucked up thing you've ever done or endured or experienced? Oh, good Lord. Where do I even start? I mean, I, um, I, I did a lot of drugs in my 20s. I made a lot of terrible uh, romantic decisions. I once um, dated a clown. Um, not not the birthday clown what kind of clown he was he was like a he was like a fringe festival clown although there was still like a red nose but he was like he was a pretentious clown which i think is actually even worse than a birthday clown 
<laughs> I, I was going to say, like, everyone can say they've dated a clown, but not many of us can say an actual professional, somebody who got that person a, a paycheck clown for clowning. A literal clown. He he went to school for clowning. Yeah. <laughs> now, we're going to hear from the clown community. I don't think all clowns are necessarily bad partners. We're not suggesting that there aren't dateable, fuckable, decent clowns out there, are we? Or are clowns undateable fuck-ups? No, I mean, he was actually, he was great in bed. He did not take himself too seriously, which is, you know, <laughs> a, a good thing to have in a sexual partner, right? And he also, you know, he was very aware of his body. Clowning gives you a sort of, like, physicality. So, no, I, I highly encourage, uh, you know, everybody to go explore their local clowning community for potential partners. All right, so you are Ask a Fuck Up, Brandy Jensen. We have three really fucked up questions for you. Do you want to tackle them with me? Yes, please. I'm excited. All right, here we go. I'm in my mid-30s in a coastal city, and I've been dating a guy for three weeks. He has asked me to follow up with a group of people who have accused him of violating the consent of several women who participate in his favorite hobby. This group has convinced many organizers of his hobby to not allow him to participate in it. According to the guy I'm dating, his only misdeed was to be too clingy and to hit on too many women in his hobby at a time, and much of the criticism towards him was initiated by the women whose affections he did not return as revenge. His roommate, who refuses to speak with him, is another straight man, and he gave me his business card right in front of my new guy and told me that if I wanted to find out about the horrible things my guy has done to women to contact him. My new guy wants me to contact his roommate because he wants to know exactly what this group of up to eight people are currently saying about him. He wants me to ask direct questions about the when, where, and how of the accusations. This drama has been going on for a year and a half with some of the stories going back as far as four years ago. I don't want to be entangled in this drama, and it's enough for me to judge my new guy based on how he's treating me, but he really wants to know what they're saying about him. If the allegations are false then it's extremely unfair that my new guy is banned from the main organizations of his favorite hobby. If I like him and I believe him, is it the right thing to do to pursue this? All right, Brandy, ask a fuck up. This is a pretty fucked up situation, I have to say. This is a fucked up situation. I have a couple of thoughts. First of all, three weeks, three weeks. She's been with this guy and she's already in this situation. That was the first thing that I bumped on. Three weeks and you're calling this person my guy? Three weeks? You don't know this person at three weeks. Don't call anyone you've been dating for three weeks your anything. They are a stranger. Honestly, and if if three weeks in, you are looking to advice columnists for anything, like <laughs> that, that's a problem. That, there's your answer right there. I also, I mean, I have my suspicions about this hobby community. Like I said, this is not, this guy's not into model airplanes, I'm assuming. Um, she keeps referring to it as his hobby. I'm, I mean, I'm guessing it's got to be some sort of kink, right? Uh, who knows? Maybe it's the Society for Creative Anachronisms. Maybe it's some sort I of geeky well, fandom hobby thing. Maybe they play that. Uh, game from Harry Potter that I saw people playing in the park the other day. I mean, uh, the idea that, you know, he's gotten in trouble about issues of consent within his hobby, like, mm, I, it was a little fishy to me. But anyway, yes, three weeks, three weeks in, this guy is not your boyfriend, and nor should you spend another minute with him. <laughs> like, like, if everyone in, in someone's opinion. life is warning you to run from this person, including the person he lives with, and they're like, yeah, no, like 
the people who know him better than you know him are intervening to shut this down. Like what's likelier? Like everyone in his life, including the people that he lives with, has it in for him or he's an asshole. Well, and she, you know, she said she wants to like, you know, I want to judge him based on how he treats me. I mean, here's how he's treating you three weeks in. He's asking you to be his spy in, you know, a community of people who seem very aggrieved by his behavior that like he's already treating you poorly. He's using this woman, you know, to go out there and do recon. Uh, Absolutely. If, if, If three weeks in someone is involving you in conflict, with people in their lives and the conflict predates your presence in that person's life, run, run, run so far. I'm, I'm astounded that the question is, should I, should I spy for him or not? And not like, should I block him everywhere and possibly move to a new city to escape this (laughs) asshole? (laughs) This is a very clear cut. No, this Cut him off. You're done. We call those DTMFAs around here, and I completely agree. Yes. Hey, Dan. I'm a male in the South, uh, mid-30s, and I'm trying to figure out some privacy etiquette. Basically, raised in a pretty religious household, and my mom has always sort of been the arbiter of all things fair and righteous and, you know, those things. Not an unkind person, but definitely strict when it came to the right thing to do. Well, my, I have an older brother that's a little, that's always been a little bit off the rails. He's uh, in his late thirties now and he lived with them for a long time because of drug and alcohol abuse and stuff. He's now on his own. And anyway, my mom basically let me know over the holidays that while at his house once, at, while he was at their house, he left his Facebook signed in and she has been checking his messages just to snoop and kind of check up on him. And he doesn't know. And I kind of told her that I thought that that probably wasn't a good idea and she should log out. And then I found out, you know, not that long ago that she's still doing it and still and like almost bragging about it to family members. And um, she just sits, you know, at night and reads through all his messages and his life and everything. And uh, I think this is a huge privacy breach. And I brought it up and she sees it as her duty as a mother to know what's going on with her kids. He is almost 40. (laughs) He has definitely, you know, made some bad mistakes, but that doesn't, in my mind, leave him open to being spied on and not having no privacy whatsoever. Um, And she seems to think that this isn't an issue or problem. I'm trying to figure out if I should tell my brother, sort of, we don't have a close relationship, but if I should do, you know, tell him or if I should do some more passive aggressive out of the way thing to kind of let him know that he's being spied on secretly or something. Um, My main worry is that he and my mom already have a pretty rough patch relationship and I don't want him to hate her any more than he already kind of does. And I feel like if I just came out and said, Hey, mom's spying on you, (laughs) like change your password. uh, That would do that and make things worse. So what do I do? All right. Should this guy let his fuck up brother know that his fuck up mother is spying on his Facebook messages? (laughs) Um, I mean, here's the thing. I, in my own personal life, um, more often than not take, you know, what I like to call the coward's way, which would be, you know, telling him that there was some like privacy issue and he should change his Facebook password. But I truly think she, I, I think he should tell the brother what the mom's up to, because this is an egregious breach of privacy. 
um, and one that she, you know, does not seem inclined to feel in any way bad about. And I feel like something that needs to know, you know, he's the, the caller is, uh, very rightfully concerned that, you know, this is going to lead to some major breakdown in their relationship, but it's the mother's actions that are going to lead to a breakdown in their relationship, not him disclosing this. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, he does seem to be worried about inflaming an already contentious relationship between the brother and the mom, but maybe that needs to be inflamed. So mom learns her lesson and knocks this shit off. Even if your son is a fuck up and a drug addict, you don't have a right to read his private messages on Facebook or anywhere else. And the son needs to learn that he needs to not open his Facebook account at mom's house or anywhere else and forget to shut it. Like there's a lesson he needs to learn too. <laughs> he needs to be a little bit more vigilant. Um, and yeah, this mother, I mean, I don't, I don't really see like, what does she imagine is going to be some like actionable information that she's going to find out from snooping on his Facebook. This isn't, this isn't a matter of care or concern, you know, concern is rarely practiced. Um, in secret or behind your back. This is just, she's just being wildly inappropriate. And, you know, his past, she may think justifies this, but really, I mean, he's going on 40 years old, like you can't, what are you going to do? Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old queer woman, and I eloped with my husband uh, a year ago, a year ago. And it was like a very crazy time in my life. So many, so many red flags. I'm actually calling <laughs> to list some of them off now uh, because I want to know if you think that I am in a controlling relationship situation and I need to maybe think about confronting that, possibly exiting it. Uh, I mean, the thing is, like, things are generally good. You know, he's helped me at some very significant low points. When I was going through the breakup before we got together and how horrible that was and having to, like, get all my ex's things together and coordinate that while I was getting, like, horrible text messages from my ex about him trying to steal my dog, all these, like, things. So he's been he's a good person, I think. I know. I know he's a good person. But the red flags, Dan, are so big. Like, um, my husband will shut down and cut me off after almost any criticism or issue I raise. You know, like the affection goes away. It's very cold and standoffish. I think he knew about how painful the threat of my dog getting stolen was, and he's used that threat twice on me to get me to come home after, I think it was like a night of having a couple beers after work with some friends or something or a dispute. I don't remember the details. And I recently learned that uh, he never told me about being a sperm donor to a friend of his. And uh, he filed his taxes separately, but didn't discuss these things with me. Yeah, so I'm a little alarmed, like realizing that the person I married might be a stranger and I might be a fool. The whole idea of me inviting other advice columnists on and us taking calls together, the premise of the second opinion segment is to let you go first uh, and take the first whack at the call on a show where I get to take all the whacks. Uh, I have so much to say about this. It's really hard not to go first, but I'm going to be a, a good and polite little Catholic advice columnist podcast boy and let my guest go first. 
Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Um, I do. I, I also have a lot of thoughts on this. It's this woman seems to have, seems to have jumped from one hasty decision to another, which is, you know, a very relatable thing that we've all done in our lives, especially when you're, you know, fresh off the heels of a really terrible relationship. Like it sounds her last one was, um, it's very easy to find any port in a storm, but I've, I don't know that the answer is to make yet another, um, sort of dramatic hasty decision, like leaving him immediately or, or filing for divorce tomorrow. Um, I think, uh, what, this caller has sort of failed to do at maybe the last few points in her life is to really take stock of the situation that she's found herself in and, and figure out um, what is it that she needs. This guy that she's with um, has, you know, clearly profound communication issues. The, the dog thing is, is weird. And as a, as a dog uh, lover dog owner would freak me out as well. Although I don't know that I would go so far as to classifying his behavior as like dangerously controlling. Um, I don't know. I mean, she clearly, if there, if there's something worth staying married for, I, you know, like you need to get into therapy and figure out how to talk to this guy without, you know, I have to break him in. Shutting down. <laughs> I, I have to break <laughs> go in. Go for it. She needs to get the fuck out of this marriage. She needs to leave this motherfucker immediately. Twice threatening to kidnap her dog yeah, is a form of uh, emotional abuse that he knew because of her distress from the previous relationship was very effective and that he's pressing that lever all by itself is disturbing enough. But also using the threat of the dog and stealing the dog to force her to come home from, you know, a moment when she was socializing with other people and friends is I think the biggest red flag of all because that's that kind of controlling jealous behavior that escalates over time. You're one year into this relationship. She's one year into this relationship and here we are. Clear the, the sound of her voice. She is begging us for permission to leave. She is she knows she made a mistake, but you know, she married and it's embarrassing and it'll be humiliating to end the marriage and she's going to have to cop to having done something in haste that she regrets and that's mortifying and you know nobody likes to be mortified but i i just think that everything she's begging us brandy she's begging us for permission to go not to a couple's okay. counselor but to get the fuck out of this marriage get the fuck away from this asshole and you know sometimes people get into this you know the guy was really helpful when she was getting out of her previous relationship so he swooped in at a time when you were vulnerable and helped you out there are people who swoop in when we're vulnerable and help us out and it is altruism they are just helping sometimes icky abusive people swoop in when we're vulnerable because they want leverage over us they want to create a feeling of indebtedness and that he went from swooping into helping her to marrying her to now attempting to control her and issuing the same traumatizing threats that her ex did get out you fucked up <laughs> marrying this guy unmarry this guy now <laughs> Okay, you are you are you are convincing me more and more. I was a little bit unclear about whether he strictly repeated the threats to kidnap the dog, or if he just referenced them. And like that was a little unclear in her recounting to me. I, I had to listen to it twice, but he but it's clear I think when I re-listen to it that he has threatened to kidnap her dog on two occasions to get her to make her come home from the to, bar. to get her to obey him. That he is gonna, he has taken that dog hostage, just like her ex threatened to. 
I, I mean, I'm I, I'm coming around to yours. I see. This is why I I remain a fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're, you're, no, you're no, no, you're batting seven hundred and fifty. I'm I'm not good at sports. You're batting six hundred sixty six, which is great because I thought your advice for the first two callers was spot on. And I'm not always right. Sometimes I get it wrong. Sometimes I fuck up. We're all fuck ups. But I just. Uh, you know, I think there's this prejudice in the culture that if somebody's married, we have to like do everything we can to save that marriage, if it's at all possible to save that marriage. And that prompts us sometimes to ignore not just those of us in those relationships that we need to get out of, but advisors prompts us to sometimes ignore, overlook, or minimize red flags and bad signs going forward. People who engage in this kind of controlling behavior early in a relationship, and we're still early in this relationship, if it works, that escalates over time. And it's worked. He's been able to control her with those threats and the threats are, and the control is going to escalate over time. The time to get out is now. All right. I, I agree. I call her, please leave. No, the, I'm not trying to bag on you. Like maybe you're right. No, maybe no, they no, should go no, to couples no, therapy. No, you, if you no. look up advice in the dictionary, it's his opinion about what could or should be done. Your opinion is as valid as my opinion, but two different opinions for the caller to choose from. The more I listen to you, the more I'm, I'm, I'm being swayed that actually it's the, it's the, it's a threatening dog in order to get her to come home from like a, you know, drinks with friends or whatever that is. That's something that has the potential to escalate. And then the not telling her about being a sperm donor and all the other crapola and and just sometimes, sometimes maybe I'm just like too tapped into the tone of people's voices or how they sound. It's just, it seems to me that there's just SOS all over her tone. And she just needs permission to go, which, you know, you've just, you're two months into this advice racket. I'm 27 years into this advice thing. And half of our jobs is giving people permission to leave. I go. did. I did start off one of, one of my columns with a, with uh, what I think is really the major insight of advice uh, giving and receiving is that, you know, more often than not, people are looking for permission. Yes. To either continue doing what they're doing or to, you know, leave or do something that, you know, maybe the wider culture tells them they aren't allowed to do. I have told people who've asked me what I do for a living, I have said, I hand out permission slips. That's what I do for a living. (laughs) Permission to like get peed on, permission to leave somebody who's terrible for you, permission to tell the truth, permission to come out, permission to confront somebody. That's what we do. That's what the advice record is. It's the permission slip industry. Brandy Jensen, she is the social media editor at The Outline and author of the brand spanking new advice column, Ask a Fuck Up. In my personal opinion, I've read some of her columns. She gives great advice. She did a great job on the show today. Please come back. Thank you. I would love to. It was so much fun. And where can people find Ask a Fuck Up? Uh, you can find it on theoutline.com. Thank you so much, Brandy. It was a real pleasure chatting with you. Thanks so much. Hey, Dan. Uh, 29-year-old here calling from Canada. Curious about the best way to properly ex- express your interest and intentions in someone. So a bit of backstory. Uh, I'm at a club a week back, which is a popular hangout spot for me and some other emo pop punk people that I know. And I ended up meeting this girl who, you know, we, we both had mutual friends there. We danced a bit, you know, maybe drunkenly held hands, but nothing out of the ordinary, I would say. <laughs> We went our separate ways at the end of the night. You know, nothing, nothing happened. That was fine. We've, we've been chatting a bit on social media each day since that night. And actually, we ran into uh, each other at a show again. Uh, I recently asked her if, you know, she wanted to go for coffee or drinks or something. And then she 
questioning me whether it was a date or just his friend. And I panicked and said, just his friends, because I felt it was his safe answer. I guess my question is, should I have been more forthcoming about, you know, wanting it to be a date? I have really bad anxiety as well, so I'm always constantly worried about offending people or saying the wrong thing. Should I have said that I wanted it to be a date right off the bat? Do I tell her next time I see her? Do I forget about uh, dating her altogether and just be friends? What do you think? So it's been a little bit since you called. Did you ever go on that not date date thing? Yeah, yeah. She uh, she came over and, you know, I think we probably got a little too drunk and a little too stoned. But uh, yeah, it was it was a great time. And are you dating now? Uh, well, see, this is the thing. Like, at, at, at what point does one consider it dating? Because I've seen her a couple of times that are at her usual hangout spot with friends, but we haven't necessarily had another one-on-one hangout, so to speak, although we've, we've tried to, if that makes any sense. Okay, so it's a casual sort of hooking up thing now. Have you, did you guys have sex? Did you mess around? Did you make out? Oh, yeah, yeah. We, you know, we, 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 we hooked up. We fooled around. You know, we, we, we did what happens in those situations. <laughs> okay, so zooming back to the beginning of this beautiful relationship... When you ask somebody out on a date and they ask you if you're asking them out on a date, tell the fucking truth. Okay. Say, yes, I, I was thinking of this as a date. The, you say you panicked when she asked. Why? What were you afraid of? I think, I mean, I, I, I do have bad anxiety at times. And I think, I, I think I'm always just worried about offending people or, or, or saying the wrong thing. So I, I try to be as, safe as possible. Did you know what's more offensive than hearing that somebody who asked you on a date was asking you on a date? Hanging out with somebody who told you it was just a friend thing and then realizing they're trying to get into your pants because they were hanging out with you then potentially under false pretenses. Then you're weaseling your way into their pants rather than being honest about your intentions. So for fear of offending her by telling her that this was a date, that you're asking out on a date, you risked a much greater offense if she hadn't been interested in you, and it turns out that she was, so it all worked out in the end, but you risked a much greater offense in withholding that information. Because if she was thinking, I like him as a friend, and he's calling me and saying, let's hang out as friends, and so that's why I'm here hanging out with him as friends, and now he's making a move on me? Well, then he lied to me about why he wanted to hang out. He had an ulterior motive. So just in the future, you know, maybe you'll wind up with this person. You'll never have to ask anyone else on a date ever again. But in the future, if you ask somebody out and it's a date, don't be ambiguous. Don't put them in a position of having to ask you for clarification even. Tell them you would like to ask them out on a date if that's what you want. And then they can opt in or opt out. And usually, you know, you say you have anxiety and and I appreciate that and I understand that. Um, I have close personal friends with anxiety issues. I know how... I know how that can, you know, make you second guess your own intentions and impulses and what you're going to say. Usually the problem when someone is asked this question, are you asking me out on a date? Is they don't want to make themselves vulnerable. They don't want to risk rejection. And so they dissemble. Like, I don't want, you know, wait, is this a date? If you say, yeah, I was hoping it would be a date, then you've opened your heart up for kicking, potentially. If they're not interested in you in the same way that you're interested in them. And the trick that everyone has to play in their heads is, rush toward rejection. 
Like if she's not interested in you the way you're interested in her, you don't want to waste your time pining and hoping or weaseling. You definitely don't want to weasel, right? Right. You want to know. Right. So when they say, wait, are you asking me out on a date? And there's like, oh my God, if I tell the truth, they may reject me. Well, okay. If I tell the truth and they're not interested, then I won't be wasting my time on this person anymore. You know, maybe we can be friends, but I won't be wasting my time hoping against hope or asking them out for friendly hangouts where, you know, what I really want is something more romantic and intimate, but how then do I upgrade to romance and intimacy when the premise of this hangout was just friends? Like you make it worse for yourself. Right. Yeah. No, I, I I get that in the future, the next time a girl, and maybe there won't ever be a next time because you and this girl are going to, fall in love, but you know, most relationships we're ever going to be in are going to fail. So odds are you will be asking women out again in the future. When it's a date, say it's a date. Don't wait for them to ask. Don't put them in a position where they have to ask you a follow-up question. And if you do by accident and they ask, tell the truth. Okay. Because the thing you should, you know, to your anxiety and panic, the thing that you should panic about is being with this person with them having one understanding about why they're there and you having another, because that's a recipe for disaster. Didn't happen. wasn't a disaster. It worked out for you and this woman, but that is often a recipe for disaster. Right. And that's okay. what you should panic about. Not telling the truth in the moment, but setting yourself up for, for a catastrophe in your apartment. Right. Okay. Good luck with this relationship. All righty. Thank you so much, Dan. Hi, Dan. Um, I've been friends with this person for about three years now. Him and I, we text almost every day, um, and I consider him a really good friend of mine. Well, last year we decided that it had been too long since we had seen each other, so I visited him in D.C. for three days, um, and I live in Michigan. So, And those three days were amazing. And there, we were kissing and hand-holding, and um, he bought tickets to take me to this museum I really wanted to go to. And then when the three days were over, there was no, there, there was no real difference, um, which was fine. But we continued to talk every day, being happy and flirty, just back in our respectable places. Um, but almost two months ago, we were on the phone and decided that we wanted to have a long weekend. And so we decided on a weekend and he was going to come visit Michigan for the first time. And so we started counting down the weeks and then we were counting down the days. And then the day comes and we're even counting down the hours. And about three hours before his plane's supposed to take off, he texts me and he tells me that his boss wants to have this emergency meeting with him. Um, I don't really think anything of it. We both work in politics. Um, It's not really that uncommon. Um, And then an hour goes by and his boss hasn't showed up for this meeting. And then another hour goes by and he's finally having this meeting supposedly. Um, And his flight's supposed to leave in one more hour. And I'm telling him, dude, you got to wrap it up. Meanwhile, he's reassuring me it's going to be okay. He's nearby. He's got pre-TSA, blah, 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 blah. He's comforting me. And then he informs me suddenly that his boss needs him to go on a work trip for lunch the next day and that he won't be in Michigan that night. And so when time goes by, I I try to text him. I try to call him about rescheduling, um, getting some clarity about some stuff, asking him if he's okay, and he doesn't contact me back at all. Complete silence. It's been about two and a half weeks. And at first I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt, but when I unexpectedly spent three days in the hospital last week, He never got a hold of me to ask me if I was even okay. And it wasn't a secret where I was. He still follows me on all my social media. So here's my predicament is why would someone do this? 
Did he ever buy the plane ticket? Um, did he want to cut the friendship off? Did he get cold feet? And then my other thing is that I, I really want some closure. If we're never going to talk again, that's fine. But I don't know. Should I send him an email and explain to him how I felt and tell, you know, maybe try to get an apology out of him? I could really use your help. If it'll make you feel better to send the email, send the email. I don't think you're going to get an answer. Someone who ghosts on you like this guy did obviously doesn't care enough about you or care enough about your feelings to explain himself, to tell you the reason why they needed to end the relationship or end the friendship. And so they just tiptoe the fuck out of your life. And an email lobbed over the fence isn't going to cause someone who cared about you so little to ghost on you in the first place to come through with the explanation or the apology that you feel that you deserve in the second place. But bent, go ahead, feel the fuck out of your feelings, pour them into an email and send them to him. Maybe it will prick his conscience and you will hear something from him in return. It is unlikely though. So you need to regard that email as the period at the end of this paragraph, this relationship, it's over, period, done. And the final act is that email. If you hear something back from him, great, but it is Unlikely. Hi, Dan. This is calling in regards to the man who was uncertain about his partner's um, mastectomy and if he was like, if he could be attracted to her without boobs. My aunt had a double mastectomy and then had breast replacement surgery afterwards. And one of the boobs in her chest kind of migrated to the side and she has a big scar on it. So she calls it her Franken boob. And sometimes she kind of regrets getting the replacement surgery. So I just kind of wanted to remind the caller that sometimes, you know, the replacement boobs might not be these, you know, perfect, natural looking boobs you have in mind and these can go wrong. And there's a lot of reasons why women might choose to opt out of this surgery. Hi, in response to the woman in 604 who's upset that her man won't give her period sex, um, I am a bi lady with a lovely girlfriend who loves period sex. And I am a period haver, and it freaks me out. And no, I don't enjoy that at all, and I don't blame your boyfriend. But I do work around it because you're right, we shouldn't be punished. And if you're okay with it and she's okay with it, the receiver is cool with it, then um, what I do is use a vibrator on her clit, maybe a dildo in her butt. I haven't used one in her pussy yet, but I probably could and be okay with it. But I also feel comfortable knowing that if I told her that it just was too much, she'd be okay with that. So that's a big part of me wanting to please her because I want to make her comfortable and she makes me comfortable. So give him a little benefit of the doubt. Tell him how it can really help your cramps and tell him how period orgasms can be so amazing. But yeah, it's not for everyone. Hi, I'm calling to leave a little message for the woman on episode 604 who is surrounded by assholes who recently stopped eating pork. It sounds like you might be a little bit smarter than everyone in your family and the guy that you married. I know this isn't a popular opinion, but not everyone has the brain power to question things. And it sounds like maybe you are just a diamond in the rough and you happen to have a little bit more brain power than the people around you. It doesn't mean you need to run away from them right now, but 
I have a feeling that after a couple years of questioning things and coming to conclusions that the people around you aren't smart enough to come to, you might want to run away and be surrounded by smarter people, maybe who are more liberal and who aren't afraid to ask questions that challenge the status quo. I hope you hear this, and I hope that when that day comes, if it does come, and I think that it will, you aren't afraid to step outside of that circle of people who just aren't functioning on the same level as you. Hi, this is um, a response for the woman who called in about her family being pricks about her not eating pork. I have an idea, and it's probably like a 10-year investment, but what about getting a pig as a pet? Those little teacup pigs are freaking adorable, and I hear that the like larger pigs make really great family pets, and then name it something like a human name, like Anthony, and then they're going to look at pork products a lot differently after coming to love Anthony, the family pig. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Catch Hump. Hump is touring the country, my dirty little porn film festival. Go to humpfilmfest.com to find out when or if Hump is coming to and on you. Also, while you're online again, go to itmfa.org, order some merch, support three great organizations. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow that fuck-up Brandy Jensen on Twitter at Brandy L. Jensen. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks.